time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the political science department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salome. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to once again interview Don Stanley, an award-winning instructor who teaches design, social media, and digital marketing courses for the UW-Madison Department of Life Sciences Communication. Don also owns a digital consulting firm, 3 Rhino Media, that provides design and digital marketing services to clients throughout the United States. So stepping back a bit, with Facebook recently facing a historical crisis and taking a beating from both sides of the political spectrum, we wanted to get Don's take on the recent revelations unleashed by former Facebook product manager Francis Hagen. So if you remember, internal company documents suggested that high-level Facebook executives like Mark Zuckerberg were not only aware of evidence showing that its platforms sowed the seeds of divisive politics that in some cases promoted violence, but their own internal studies also indicated that Instagram can contribute to mental health issues, particularly among teenage girls. All of this has led to political and legal experts on the left and right suggesting that Facebook may, in fact, have broken the law. Perhaps betting on the reality that most people are not going to give up the many addictive and entertaining platforms that the company offers, Mark Zuckerberg has brazenly rebranded his corporation even amidst the worldwide public outcry, blaming his company for the rise of authoritarian regimes, inciting violence, and tearing countries and families apart. Now, it is now called Meta, and Zuckerberg is publicly promising it will offer a matrix-like virtual utopia of social connection and workplace productivity. Well... Thank you for joining us today, Don. I am, I'm for one, very excited about this conversation. I am as well. This is such a topical, relevant to like almost everybody because of the breadth of impact that different social platforms like Facebook have across the planet. When you think of the scale of how many people use these tools and then how many people get information from those people who use these tools, it's it's very, very hard to not be impacted by it in some way, regardless of where you are in the world. And we're not even just talking about Facebook. I mean, it, it's getting to the point where it spans across. I mean, we're going to touch on Instagram. We're going to talk a little bit about this, this meta situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. TikTok, you know, and the impact that TikTok has and TikTok being owned by uh, a Chinese company, you know, which causes a number of security concerns for people in the United States in terms of, you know, whether it's CIA, FBI being concerned about that being utilized. And there's no shortage of topics. <laughs> oh, speaking of TikTok, I don't know if you've seen it, but I remember, you know, like all, all these big names have said, you know, all workplace meetings will take place in the metaverse within, you know, two years. Um, and then there are IT people that will say, but, and then list off all the tickets they've received that day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cord doesn't work. Laptop sounds like an engine and it just goes down the list. Chrome is, is gone. Where's my Chrome? My Chrome yeah. has disappeared. Absolutely. <laughs> maybe we're not ready for it, but I guess yeah. we can also touch on that. <laughs> Absolutely, we can. Well, speaking of which, in September, 
The Wall Street Journal released a trove of internal documents from Facebook detailing how much the company knew about the harm it was causing. The company's own research found one in three teenagers, teenage users, said Instagram has contributed, contributed, whoop, to their own body image issues, eating disorders, anxiety, and depression. In October, revelations brought to light to a Senate subcommittee from whistleblower Hagen, a former data scientist at Facebook, led to what may be the most threatening scandal in the company's history. Hagen said Facebook knowingly harms children, sows division, and undermines democracy in pursuit of breakneck growth and astronomical profits. Now here's probably a good a good spot to begin. We all remember that day. We all remember the brief moment that you know Facebook and Instagram shut down. But mm -hmm. what in your mind are the major takeaways from these past few months? I think the major takeaways is that there's going to have to be some level of accountability that is added to social platforms in some way. Um, the way these platforms, Facebook, just turned 18 years old this month and. You know, if you think about it, it, it acts like a teenager anyways, meaning, you know, I don't want rules. I don't want governance. It's all about doing what I want in this moment. Um, it's about uh, creating stuff, not thinking about the impact that that creation can have or the potential negative or downsides of how the technologies can be used. And it's inspired by kind of the Silicon Valley mindset, which is innovate, innovate, innovate. Don't really take the time to think about what ethical impacts there might be or concerns there might be. And I think part of that was the naivete of, you know, Facebook and a lot of these social platforms being created by very young people when they were first starting. And the idea that they didn't consider because they had no idea Facebook, for example, was going to grow to be what it is today and that have the impact it's had in political elections and day-to-day -day life and mental health issues of millions and millions and millions of people. But the fact that they have been aware of some of the negative impacts that they are having, and they really have done very little, if nothing, to address those, often brushing those under the rugs, is really call calling for, you know, what are we going to do about this? And the challenge I always say when I'm speaking with my students or doing workshops is the challenge is that when new technologies come out, one of the big fears is that they're going to be misused. So when the printing press came out 500 years ago, there was this big concern in Europe that, hey, now anybody can print and there's going to be misinformation. So if you go back and you read several hundred years ago, this was a concern of that time and era as well. But whether you're talking print, radio or television, through most of history, those tools have had some type of producer or some type of editor or director who vetted what content was shared. And that's not the case in the world we live where anybody can post anything at any time in any way they want. And that the way information gets to people in large part is based on the algorithms and those algorithms determine what people see and don't see. And there are ways to game and manipulate those algorithms to be able to get misinformation or worrisome information out in front of lots of people. And a lot of times the, the, the stuff that gets the most attention is what we call clickbait. So it's, it's these headlines or post topics that are I meant to be sensationalized to make people stop as they're going through their phone and feed and be like, oh my gosh, I got to check this out. And, and that's something that's never happened before. You know, you didn't have that with TV or radio and other things, but we do with this. And so we're kind of in this uncharted territory of figuring out, okay, 
This has been around almost 20 years now, which is really new for any technology. But what do we do about it? How do we handle, especially since the masses have it and want access to different social tools, but how do we start governing those in some way? And I'm not saying just the government in, in this case, but in Europe, for example, a lot of, there's a lot of government involvement with regulations for Facebook, Instagram, and other technologies that don't exist here in the United States. And it makes for an inter interesting conundrum of, of what level of responsibilities do these companies have versus what often is an, at least an American mindset, which is buyer beware. I'm gonna share this information, I'm gonna put it out, but it's up to you as the consumer to figure out what's real or not. I'm just providing entertaining content or I'm just providing, you know, we see that with different media outlets that say, hey, if you really look at our mission, we're, we're entertainment platforms, not news platforms. But the way they present themselves is not that way. And it's that's kind of the same thing with Facebook where they'll say, hey, you know, we have nothing, we're just giving people this space. And it's like, yeah, but people are, are manipulating that space and they, they're knowingly manipulating that space. So there has to be some type of ethics instilled as it's grown to be such a powerful communication tool. I'm guessing that you probably weren't that surprised by, you know, this spiral of scandals, um, all these revelations, but I got to wonder, is that part of the problem that so many of us weren't surprised by it? I think it is. That's a really good point. You know, the, the idea that we just accept it because it's the way it is, it's what the playing field is. And well, that's going to happen. Um, and part of it is because we've gotten used to so much free access to content as well as publishing our own stuff. You know, people get used to that. And then when there's any type of restriction, at least in the United States, we tend to be like, wait a second, you know, I don't necessarily want those restrictions. And so part of it is that we know it's almost like eating lots of McDonald's or Burger King or whatever and being like, I know this isn't the best thing for me, but in the moment, it's so satisfying. And it's kind of the same thing with social. And I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. I know I should spend less time on my devices. You know, I do teach this stuff, so I do have to be on it. But there's times where it's like, I'm scrolling through my phone. I'm like, what am I doing? It's 20 minutes later. <laughs> and what am I doing? So, so these tools are specifically designed too to tap into some of our psychology of making us attached to them in a way that that's where our attention goes. And, um, but it, I, for me, it's kind of refreshing in many ways that, that these things are made known from somebody who has that knowledge rather than people saying, well, I think Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, whoever it is doing this, but to be able to say they know they're doing it and they're not reining it in. So if they can't take care of it themselves, there's going to have to be some type of external control. Otherwise, we'll end up continuing to have a lot of the individual problems, like what you mentioned earlier with body image issues. We'll also have societal issues of people appearing more divided on topics than they actually are because the algorithms favor divisive content. They favor showing things that are going to pull people apart and sensationalize, not content that's more in the middle ground. And so because they know that those types of pieces of content get more attention where you have a negativity bias in our brain. So we're going to tend to focus more on those things. And so they basically like, here you go, feed us, feed us. And they feed, you know, whatever we want. I think I'd like to touch on this, this phenomenon that we don't see very often, which is Democrats and Republicans kind of uniting under mm -hmm. the Facebook issue. Mm -hmm. How is that going? 
are they actually united? What, is, what does that actually look like in reality that we have kind of a, a unified sudden distrust at our, in our that, political levels? Yeah, and, and that is a really interesting point because in this time and era, which um, you know is not unusual, the level of divisiveness, if you actually study American history, is not as unusual as it might seem, which in some ways is comforting, some ways is disconcerting, right? <laughs> like, hey, it is, it's been bad before, but then other times like, can't we figure this stuff out? But this is one of those issues where, like you said, both sides of the political aisle in the United States are have expressed concern and are doing things like bringing these companies to Washington, D.C. to start quizzing them and vetting them. The sad, the sad reality, though, that, that or challenging reality is that a lot of the people who are in power don't understand the, the sheer scale and scope of what these technology companies have as far as power, because um, they're evolving so fast. And these politicians have, you know, 100 million other things that they're trying to pay attention to. Uh, so this is one of the issues they concentrate, they're concentrating on. But there's this need for, I think, more understanding on both sides of the aisle of what these tools do so that they can put into place unified regulations, whatever you want to call it, consumer protections. And again, this isn't unprecedented. If you look in Europe, France, Great Britain, several other countries, there have been regulations placed on Facebook that from all outside appearances, not having experienced them myself, but having read about them, actually have done a pretty good job of getting rid of some of the problematic content and holding Facebook accountable to, hey, you can't just let anybody post any stuff. You have to be cognizant at some level, as well as, hey, you have to make sure that your algorithm isn't highlighting false information that's sensationalized but is going to get you a lot of views so you can charge advertisers more money you need to have some kind of balance in there so it'll be interesting to see because it is one of the few things right now that is is a unifying force and this includes people just individuals like us not necessarily politicians being frustrated by what some of these social platforms do or don't do and you know, that's kind of a hopeful and from my perspective that there's going to be some action that comes out of this. Aside from kind of, well, knowingly causing harm, has Facebook actually broken any laws? Well, then this is where it gets a little bit tricky and I'm not a lawyer. I've never played one on TV. So, you know, I got to, I'm treading in some waters that I'm probably not the most qualified person to, to speak on this. One of the big questions in the European arena when they started regulating Facebook was there was some analysis done. I believe it was a graduate student from Germany. He was studying in France and found that the Facebook algorithm was doing tests and what those tests were is they were showing people darker more depressing pieces of news and then the other folks in this study who had no idea they were in the study had zero idea they were showing more upbeat stuff and facebook was looking at trying to assess did seeing the more negative content based off of the algorithm cause people to feel more depressed now, that's a huge ethical issue, right? Because you're manipulating people's mental health without their knowing, you're manipulating their mental health for your own gain without any ethical standards put in for the study, no awareness. 
so stuff like that, I mean, if that isn't breaking the law, it's pretty darn close to, you know, breaking some ethical barriers. And that's what caused Facebook to get regulated. One of the big causes of what caused Facebook to get regulated in different European countries was that person doing that study and discovering that. So it, I don't know if that was 100% illegal, but completely unethical, in my opinion, when you're manipulating people's mental health. And as we talked about where Facebook is knowingly manipulating feeds in particular for young girls and younger women and creating and having a very, very powerful negative impact on body image. I mean, that's, that's, uh, again, I don't think that's illegal because the buyer beware, you know, it's up to you to pay attention to what's going on in the algorithm, but who does know that, you know, really only the people at Facebook. So again, I don't think that's necessarily illegal, but it's more of the ethics component of it. And it should be illegal <laughs> without people's knowing, at least they need to, they should be made aware of that. In respect to, uh, you know, the reporting of the internal documents, as well as Hogan, Hogan's testimony, how effective do you think Facebook has been in their crisis management and I guess their subsequent rebranding? I think they have done what's necessary. I don't know if I've believe their motivations are good. I think they're somewhat of the, and this isn't just a Facebook thing. This is like a lot of digital social media type companies do just enough to appease the people and try to do things to like rebranding to meta rather than Facebook. What does that really do? I mean, it doesn't really change anything that Facebook is looking to do. If you listen to any of the speeches of Mark Zuckerberg of what he envisions for the future of Facebook, they still want to have this massive ecosystem of apps and technologies that permeate our day-to-day -day life. Don't really talk at all about when they're doing those presentations, again, the ethics, it's more of the coolness. Hey, you're going to be able to do these virtual meetings and imagine you're putting on your VR goggles and it's like, but what about the other stuff, right? What about the stuff with body image issues? What about political divisiveness? What about hate speech? Or in, in a lot of cases, organizations like ISIS, have used social media incredibly well to be able to recruit and attract and spread their message. What are you doing to stop stuff like that? And they never really have addressed that. So I think at least right now, it's not, I don't even know if I would say it's a band-aid over the problem. I don't think they've done a whole lot to, to start earning people's trust that they're really trying to work at helping this technology or these tools and technologies mature such that they have more of a net benefit to society, not just a net benefit to the investors. Um, and I don't, at least for me, I don't think I've seen anything that makes me feel like, yeah, I really should trust them now. It's more, like I said, been kind of smoke and mirror surface level stuff. And, and it's going to take time for them to prove that they are actually working to not just appease the, the quarterly numbers, but they're working to have more of a uh, informative, positive, or more neutral impact every place that they have impact in the, across the globe. Like you said, they're calling themselves meta, which is the Greek word for apparently for beyond, although some people have different meanings like dead in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. I this was something that was always in the back of my head. Do you think that that eventual rebranding was something they had like premeditated or 
do you think that was something that had to be born like it had to happen right then and there or else like that's a really good question i think i think they probably always have that crisis team ready to go with ideas and thinking about okay if this happens and this scenario happens if the government calls us in on this how are we going to react what are we going to do how are we going to do it so i think that it was somewhat reactionary the rebranding if you look at a lot of what the branding experts that i follow say it was like really that's what you're doing to rebrand like it wasn't this really thoughtful it seemed more reactionary too because the timing of it was such that it came out after we started getting this in these insider documents and we started getting this push from congress and the senate to say hey Facebook executives, you come in here and you talk with us. So from, from my perspective, it seemed like they, I'm sure they're thinking about these things and have some plan in place, but it's probably like, okay, if we get busted, then we do this. But if we don't, let's keep things going the way they are. At least that's, like I said, my perspective on it is that it was more reactionary, but knowing that they had to have something in place and really what they've done to try to explain what the metaverse is. I think not many people are clear on what it really is and what it's going to do other than like the cutting edge people who follow this day to day. But the, va the vast majority of people are like, what is this doing and why, it, why did they rebrand? And they don't even think of it for the most part as you go on using any of the Facebook ecosystems, whether it's Messenger, WhatsApp, in Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. And I guess that brings us to a bigger question, which is, you know, is, is it Facebook that's the problem or is the internet in general maybe a little broken? Like on one hand, there's probably a good argument to be made that if you pull the plug on Facebook today and it went away and, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is gone, the company doesn't exist, that we wouldn't improve the internet that much. And yet you could also argue that Facebook has made the internet worse because it's, it's maybe doing a bad thing and now it's centralized and it's organized and it has every element that allows it to be amplified and weaponized more than more than any other tech platform we have out there. But, you know, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And I think one of the realities is that something would take Facebook's place. Um, you know, if you study TikTok, the uh, the growth of TikTok in non-Chinese places, um, you know, what, what that platform does. And, you know, there's, there's with any platform, there's causes for concern. And I think somebody would become the next Facebook in terms of, Hey, we're just doing what the people want. And, you know, the, the ethics, you know, that's something else to be, to, to, to be figured out later on. So I think that, that you're right, that the internet in and of itself, you know, was born uh, not out of to be what it is today. It was made to be a technology that allowed scientists and military people to share data back and forth across different locations. It wasn't designed for, you know, everything that we do. And so when you think about its origin, the ethics were really simple. You had people self-policing now with, I think it's two or three billion people on the planet have daily access to the internet, you know, the considerations aren't, aren't there and it's, you know, use it how you want to use it. And it'll be interesting to see. I, I'm, I think over time, it's going to have to have some type of governing or something, but the challenge is too, is that who governs it? 
you know, Facebook is based out of the United States, but is it a American company or, or a product or is it an international product? And, you know, it's really international, right? And so then same with TikTok, how do you govern that in different places and in places where like in the United States, people very much value their freedom to be able to choose on their own what they want and what they don't want. And when you start limiting choices in a place like the United States, it has a different impact than like in China or, you know, some other countries where people are, are different in their views of whether or not they should have freedom of choice with content. But I do think it's one of those where the example that, I, that I'll often give is it's, it's the freedom that we have to access almost anything is like, you know, being a kid and, and you're at your school cafeteria or whatever, and you could have anything you want to eat and you choose what you want to eat. And what are they going to pick? You know, they're going to, because the young mind developing, et cetera, they're going to pick for the most part, the soda and the candy and the sweet stuff and the stuff that isn't necessarily good for them. And that's one of the dangers is that young people have access to these technologies and there's so much that's available that people get exposed to at a very young age that societies haven't had to have their kids dealing with it, whether it's violent stuff or pornography or, you know, all of these things. And that's where I think at some level, there'll be some pushback to help with protections for access for younger people or something along those lines. Speaking of which, I mean, Facebook says it wants like regulation that it wants, well, it claims to want that. You, you've pointed out that there's several ethical dilemmas and issues with what they're doing, even if the legal uh, line is kind of blurry there. What are some solutions we can think about going forward? Are there solutions to this dumpster fire? Are there things that the U.S. can do? Like, what have yeah. other countries done? And that's exactly what I was going to say. I, I think looking at other countries and seeing like Facebook actually this past week was saying to, I think it was primarily France and Great Britain. Some of the things you're talking about, tell you what, we're just going to pull Facebook from your countries. And they were like, cool, go ahead. <laughs> you know, Because of course, Facebook can't do that. You'll be losing a huge chunk of money and a huge percentage of, of their revenue. But the idea is that Facebook has not been really made to be accountable here, but it has in different places. So for example, there was a law instituted in France where if violent, hateful terrorist type information was posted on Facebook, Facebook had 24 hours to remove it or face a huge fine. I forget what the amount was, but it was massive fine. And they said, it's up to you. you. You are the ones allowing this stuff to be posted. You have to figure out if you're seeing beheading videos and all of these things that were taking place, you have 24 hours to, to remove it. And Facebook figured out how to do it. So they, they started working within the confines of those regulations. Uh, again, that example is from France, but Germany has some, England has some, and we can use those. One of the challenges, of course, is that America, more than most places, really personalizes and believes deeply, deeply, deeply in individual freedom, which means when you say the buyer has to be where companies can say that more so than they can in some of these European countries or other places where there's some expectation or more expectation that the government's going to help regulate. So 
So I think, I think that if more information about things like the studies that were done or the information that was brought up last fall, if that can be shared more and people made more aware, I think people would be more unified in saying, okay, politicians, this isn't the first time this is being done. Other countries have done it. Other countries that look somewhat like the United States, you know, in terms of population and diversity and governance, et cetera. So why don't we just piggyback? You know, we don't have to create something from scratch. So that's kind of what I'm hoping could be used as a way to figure out what do you do and how do you do it in a way that respects business and respects business growth, but also says there's accountability with that too. You can't, you know, just like you can't throw waste products out in the middle of nowhere or in cities and pollute stuff. You, you can't pollute cultures, minds or information networks with stuff that is not true or purposely divisive. And, and I think, I think in many levels too, one of the ways that, especially when you see this with TikTok and the CIA and other government entities talk about it being a national security threat. There's no debate that Facebook and Instagram can be as well. Instances of external groups using those tools to create what look like American front groups getting involved in everything from Black Lives Matter and white supremacy to women's health issues to try to create division. It's, it's a security issue as well for the country. So that's something that I think all of those things will push us to trying to figure out, okay, at some point we have to address this elephant in the room. This is a very, this is a very out there question, but I think it's, I think it's interesting. What do you think meta will look like in five, 10 years? Where's this going? That's a really good question. They're going to try to integrate more and more and more into our daily lives. And especially as you get the whole idea of VR and all that becoming, you know, the Oculus and all of those things becoming more mainstream where they start moving people to like the gaming side of things is what I think they will do with younger people trying to make it more entertainment based uh, with different games and different uh, technologies so that as they age up, as you were talking about earlier, it just becomes part of the norm. So like, hey, I'm going to hang out with my friends on a Friday night. I'm going to throw on my goggles, sit at home and do whatever. Um, I think they're going to push for more of that in the business arena, meetings, virtual to, you know, all kinds of stuff that I can't even think about because it's beyond my capacity to envision. It's, they're going to try to make things more and more virtual, more and more and, and there's some benefit to that. Of course, we saw that with the pandemic, but there's also drawbacks to that. And, and that, that's the thing that I think we'll, they'll be pushing us to trying to make as much of our day-to-day lives part of their platform and part of their experience. That's, you know, it's going to be a battle between them and then Microsoft and Amazon and all those technologies that they want to have our world they want to have us in the ecosystem whether it's i have an iphone and apple tv and an apple computer or i have you know amazon stuff and alexa or whatever it is i think the more they can integrate into the day-to-day lives that's what they're going to be looking to do you know what that that all makes sense that all makes sense as 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 slightly terrifying as it is. 100% terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Because again, they don't really have our best interests at heart. And it's one of the things that's most fascinating about the algorithms. If you look at 
what content works best, it's the most sensationalized pieces of information. And before there were 24 hour news cycles, before there was 24 hour information access on our devices and on the socials and all that, um, there was downtime, which when news organizations went online, there was a limited window of attention span being dedicated to news. And so they could have more middle ground stories or more feel good stories or whatever. But now as we have this 24 hour day, seven day a week, 365.25 days a year, intensive fight for attention, the negativity bias of the brain, these companies know it, and the more sensationalized they can make content and make it seem negative, the more they're going to do that because they're fighting for attention. And if you get attention, you get people looking at your platform. If you get people looking at your platform, you can charge more for ads. So it's, it's about eyeballs on platform. It is not about educating. It is not about helping. It is not about ethics. It's about eyeballs on platform. And that that's a scary thing, you know, that it's like, hey, we don't care what we're putting out. You know, if I want to get people to come into my restaurant, I want to put out just crappy food and make it dirt cheap because then people can afford it and they're going to have this physiological bias to eating it. I'm not doing anything other than giving people what they want, right? And this is kind of the same thing, in my opinion, is like, you know, you have to compete for attention, make up stuff, make it more sensationalized, create this sense of like fear and anxiety and you know, and if you look at the numbers of people with depression, anxiety, et cetera, especially since the iPhone came out in 2007, the numbers are through the roof. It's not necessarily causation, but there's strong correlation between us having the phones and the access to all of these apps and information all the time and our mental health and our ability to feel optimistic about the future or to not worry about things that we can't control that we could never have controlled in the past when the world had huge problems before but now we hear nothing about anything other than all of the problems right all of the bad all and it you know it's a negativity bias i think this is where you know they have to have some way of being like okay you got to balance stuff out in some way with the algorithms. And that's way beyond my ability to think and comprehend how that works as a business model, as an ethical model, as, you know, how do you police it? But it's something I think that, you know, needs to happen. You can't just, you know, create sensationalized stuff so that people look at your platform. Doesn't matter if it's true or not, but the more you can do that, the better. And then that means more money for your investors and um, betterly quarterly profits. And it's like, can we think a little bit beyond that? You can still be super profitable financially, but, you know, are we serving the bigger good? And that's where I hope young people like yourself start to say, hey, as we move into these positions of power, we, we want some of that accountability. Yeah, we can, we can have some flexibility because the world has changed, but we also want these companies to, you know, have some level of they can't just say buyer beware. They also have to be accountable for what they're putting out and what they're doing. Kind of what, what you were, what you were going off of a little bit with the idea of like sensationalism and candy. Mm -hmm. I feel like Joe Rogan has always been a little bit, has always been kind of an extremist. I remember listening to him the first time when I was like 16 and someone recommended the podcast to me, Mm -hmm. he said like a slur. And then I said, never mind. I'm yeah. never going to listen to this again. And I feel like so many people are surprised that he's been, you know, saying terrible things all this time. Mm-hmm. And yet there's only accountability right now, kind of like Facebook, because mm-hmm. suddenly it's at the forefront. Like, I don't know how, how do millions of people 
like consume a bad thing and like not notice it's bad until there's a whistleblower. I don't know. Like it's, it, it feels so odd that places well, the, on the internet can get away with this. Yeah. The, the, the interesting thing is the, I'm going to push back a little bit. The definition of a bad thing is there's a lot of people who say Rogan's isn't. A That's bad true. Thing. That's true. You know, because I was talking with one of my students about this yesterday and she was talking about different type of misinformation. And I said, have you ever watched the documentary Merchants of Doubt? She's like, I have no idea what Merchants of Doubt is. So look it up. What Merchants of Doubt is, is it's a documentary, uh, kind of like Dope Sick that's out right now, where companies specifically hired and paid off scientists to manipulate data to say that tobacco was not harmful. And then also to say fat was the problem with Americans health, not sugars. They knew that was not at all true. They were lying through their teeth, but they created such a misinformation campaign that when they went to Congress, when they pushed for legislation, they were able to, to get what they wanted. And then it came out 30 years later that, wait a second, even though the government was saying these things were okay, they really weren't. So part of the reason that people have some skepticism is you, you will hear stories like that of like, wait a second, government has messed up or these organizations have messed up and that creates a little sense of doubt, right? And so people will be more open to saying, okay, what else is out there? The challenge is, is that somebody like a Rogan is a great entertainer. I mean, he's a great entertainer. He has very interesting guests on, but you don't know necessarily counter views to what those guests are saying because he wasn't doing a good job of bringing somebody in, especially closely like, for example, interviewing somebody about COVID on one side, like he did have Sanjay Gupta, I think it was on, but, you know, kind of balancing out the percentages more of people who are talking about COVID isn't real, COVID is fake or whatever, and balancing that out with other perspectives of people who are like, no, this is real. I'm a you know medical doctor who's got all this background as well. And I can say, these are what the numbers are showing. Um, so part of it is like, too, and this is the challenge, whether you look at some of the major news sources, like if you look at Fox News, Fox News says clearly in its charter that it's an entertainment company first, but people don't think of it that way. Similarly with Joe Rogan, um, you know, people will sometimes be like, is it entertainment? Is it information? And it's, sometimes it's, it's hard to tell. And that's not a knock on any place, but it's a, a knock on the idea that we have to be cognizant of when these are being done is more entertainment versus more informational. Um, and then you're always going to have your people who, you know, with cognitive dissonance, you're going to go to what you agree with and you're going to listen to what you agree with and, you know, ignore alternative perspectives. So for example, like what I've done during election times is I watched a lot of Fox News and I watched a lot of CNN just to see how the different candidates were being portrayed. And it was amazing that you'd watch one and you think this candidate's great. And then you watch it on the other network and you'd be like, this candidate's an idiot because, you know, they're choosing the content to show. And that's their editorial choice, right? They, their editorial choice is to do that. But I think we need to be cognizant uh, as best we can of trying to be open to alternative perspectives and looking at things like, okay, and this is where Brene Brown, I think, did a very interesting strategy of being so nuanced in, this is what's going on. I'm on Spotify as well, but this is why I'm holding off producing something new. 
the one thing that I will say with the Rogan situation is he did a decent job of addressing the issue in terms of coming up with the video, but now it's the idea of, are you going to follow through on it? Right. And so just like Zuckerberg going to Congress and saying, yeah, we're going to deal with this and we're going to, you know, we see some of these problems. Are you actually going to address them? Or are you just saying that just to pass the time and then, and then go back? That line being blurred is one that we haven't really had to deal with before, or at least for a long, long time. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how do we hold somebody like a Rogan accountable or, you know, whoever it is, make sure that multiple perspectives are being addressed. Make sure that um, like the solution Spotify came up with was we're going to label every COVID-19 conversation with this label. And it's like, it does every conversation, you know, or is it just, you know, certain ones and, and that's a, that's a sticky place, of course. Um, but those are types of things I think we're going to see pushes to have better definitions and better clarity over the next five to 10 years and see if those some type of wording, some type like with the movies where it used to be, you know, you have much, many more uh, ratings for the rating system now than you did before. <clears throat> Maybe that's something that comes out of it. I'm not sure, but uh, it'll be very interesting to see when you have your big money makers like that, you know, Rogan, is beyond a shadow of a doubt, a huge, huge part of Spotify's revenue. And is there going to be enough self introspection like Zuckerberg earlier when he said he's, he doesn't get it. <clears throat> Do some people, are they actually going to get it and say, you know what, it's a good point. I'm going to make my show a little bit different or I'm going to incorporate or not. I mean, that, that's kind of a, we're, we're in a wait and see mode. As we come to a close here, I think it would be nice if we could end with a fun question. We've covered a lot of hard and scary topics today. We would like to know when you get overwhelmed, you know, with with everything that's on the internet in media, what is what is your internet safe haven? Whether that be a website, a web based application, anything. Where, where where do you go to find some solace? Two. Two things. One is outside. Outside, <laughs> uh, not so internet. Good safe being place. Outside, yeah. Being able to let the brain disconnect because our brains are physiologically wired to not be hit with information all the time. And we're living in a time and era that we're the first generation of humans to experience this much data deluge. And it's hard for our brains to process it because we're not designed for that. The other thing I do, uh, I'm a huge dog lover, dog person, used to be a dog trainer and worked with wild wolves. So I love to watch Instagram videos of some of my favorite dogs. <laughs> so it's like, they're just happy. They're in the moment. Maybe I could be a little bit more like this right now. So to me, they're good teachers and reminders of like, hey, you know, I, I can have a bad day and I come home, my dog's wagging his tail with his Frisbee in his mouth, like, let's go. And that helps give me a state change, right? To be like, maybe I need to be more like my dog and just look at what I have around me and just appreciate it for a moment and disconnect from all the stuff, especially the stuff that I can't control, you know, and you're limited in your capacity of what you can do and feeling like, okay, there's some level of hope. And, you know, cause I've been in that zone of like, oh my gosh, the world is ending. This is horrible. I feel super depressed. I feel super anxious. And it's like, one of my friends pointed out, he's like, look at, he's like, Don, you're a, you're a student of history. 
Look at all the things historically that have been horrible that happened while also really good things were going on in the world. It's like you have to balance out in your mind because these algorithms aren't doing it. Look for the good. Look for some of the upbeat stuff. So like Upworthy and other sites like that, I'll go to those too and just like there's a lot of good people in the world. They just aren't getting the algorithmic benefit that some of the bad is. So I've got to work that into my own life. For more information, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.